Uh, obviously the one who gives its name, Samuel. And then we, we, we meet the first king of, of Israel, Saul. And this evening we meet the third major character who will preoccupy our thinking for most of the rest of the book. First Samuel chapter 16, this is the word of God. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spread from God is tormenting you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. The harmful spirit departed from him. We do pray that God would add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Let's pause and pray together. Father, as we turn to your word, we need to hear your voice. We have no hope unless you are present. There is no salvation outside of you. May we hear your voice, feel your touch. Know the stir of your spirit in our souls. We ask to the glory of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. True story. A grandmother had her three-year-old grandson visiting, and it was not going well. He seemed to be so easily upset by just about everything that happened, and he would burst into tears But the least little thing. One incident involved biscuits. He wanted more Granny said no, and so he burst into floods of tears. Exasperated, finally, Granny said, Sam, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. You cry over nothing. And immediately, Sam calmed down, looked at his granny and said, You're supposed to tell me, stop whining, Sam. There are times in our lives when we need someone to speak to us and to tell us to stop our whining. Have you ever needed anybody to just say, would you stop your whining? We need those moments when people outside can can come to us and, and pick us up out of our discontentment or lift us out of our despondency so that we can once again get back into fruitful service for God. 
In Psalms 42, 43, there's a little repeated chorus, you know it. And the psalmist preaches to himself. He, he, he sort of says to himself, stop your whining. We find it in Psalm 42, verse 5, and verse 11, Psalm 43, verse 5. He asks the rhetorical question, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now this is not a panacea for all ills. It's not a magic mantra that makes everything all right. But sometimes, when we feel down, We need to look up and anew place our hope in God. Samuel is feeling down. Saul, the first king of Israel, the one who Samuel anointed and instructed for the task, has failed repeatedly and as a consequence, God has rejected him. He will lose his kingship. There will be no lasting dynasty from his family. And by implication, Saul's failure is Samuel's failure. And this sense of failure has immobilized the prophet. So we read, uh, if you can please open your Bible and have it there in front if you can, 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God's call comes to Samuel. Samuel is immobilized by failure. But but that's not his only problem. Because he's immobilized by failure. But he's also paralyzed by fear. Verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it. He will kill me. Now if you know what happens in the following chapters. From this point on you'll realize that Samuel had every reason to fear. Saul will make repeated attempts on David's life. On two occasions he will hurl a spear at his son Jonathan. And Saul is no respecter of those in positions of religious office. In chapter 22, we'll discover there that he kills 85 priests because he thought they were conspiring with David against him. Samuel's prophetic office will not protect him against Saul's jealous rage. So here's Samuel. He is down. He is immobilized by failure. He's paralyzed by fear. And God's solution to these problems is this. That he would get up and worship him. Get up and worship him. Verse 2. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Stop whining. Start worshiping. Develop that attitude of gratitude. That's what lifts downcast hearts out of the slough of despond. One illustration, Acts 16, you know the story. 
Paul and Silas had sought to be faithful to God. They had proclaimed the good news of the gospel in Philippi. They had served God effectively, but they also had caused difficulty for the locals. They had been whipped and beaten. They were locked and chained in the innermost dungeon of Philippi's jail. They did this. They experienced this for their faithfulness of service in the gospel. And surely they could have been expected to be down, to feel miserable. And yet, at midnight, they are praying, they are praising God. Maybe even they were saying those words of Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Paul and Silas didn't whine. They worshipped. And God moved mightily and his kingdom advanced. And here in our text, God speaks to Samuel. The call is given. Samuel gets up, he gets his heifer and he goes to Bethlehem. And there he prepares to make a sacrifice in worship to God. And Jesse and his sons are invited along to share in this feast. Now I know a number of you here will remember days in Boys Brigade. And you will have heard the command given. Tallest on the right, shortest on the left, single rank, size. Whereupon there's an immediate great deal of shuffling around and pushing and getting into order. And the boys will organize themselves in order of height. I remember... Seven years in the company section. You know that, that great delight as you, as you grow every year. You find yourself edging towards the top of the line. Towards where the bigger boys are. Maybe some of you missed out on that. But it was nice. I got to six foot and I was nearly there. Not quite at the top. But in the top five or six. Moving along to the tallest. Not sure what it was that had caused it. Jesse to organize his sons, but certainly when Eliab was presented before Samuel, he was a fine specimen, a man of physical stature, good looking. Verses 6 and 7 read, when they came, he he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. One of the best known verses in the whole of the Bible. Certainly the best known verse in this particular book of the Bible. And it makes it clear that it's not one's height, but one's heart that God is deeply concerned about. And this scene that unfolds a bit like something out of Cinderella. Each of Jesse's sons is brought in turn before Samuel and presented there. And each time God's communication is clear. Verse 10, the Lord has not chosen thee. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And we get the sense that Jesse's almost saying, look, there's another one, I can't remember his name, but there's another one somewhere. 
The unnamed son is yet to come. He was the shepherd, and hopefully you are aware that shepherds were regarded in a very lowly way in Middle Eastern culture. They were the lowest of the low in society, which makes the angelic announcement recorded in Luke's gospel of the birth of the Messiah all the more amazing. Because why would you tell shepherds they are worthless, easy to be ignored? But you see, this has always been the way of God's kingdom. This has always been the way that God works. His kingdom is upside down. It's it's topsy-turvy. It's not what we would expect. You remember how when wise men came looking for a newly born king, they went to Jerusalem, they went to the palace. But we know they ought to have been searching in the stable, in the animal's feeding trough. The Bible scholars in Jerusalem redirected their steps with these words, Micah 5 verse 2. You know the words, we read them every Christmas. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Little Bethlehem. Almost so small you could ignore it. That's where the Savior, the Messiah, God's chosen would be found. Maybe as Samuel went through this process, God nudged him, reminded him of the song his mother sang after he was conceived. That the trailer for the whole of 1 Samuel, that, that summary of all that's about to unfold, 1 Samuel 2, 7 and 8 said, Hannah's song, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. God hides kings in unexpected places. And so the shepherd boy is brought. We're not told if he had time to scrub the sheep dung off himself, get rid of the smell. But in he comes and, and he, he looks like a cute kid. He doesn't look like a warrior king. Psalm 78 verses 70 and 71 read. He, that's God, chose David his shepherd, or his servant, to look. Oh, sorry. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel, his inheritance. So little David is selected. And his older, stronger brothers are rejected. And the reason why is because God had looked into his heart. And we need to think carefully. We need to get an answer to this key question, a gospel answer to this question. What did God see when he looked into the heart of David? What was it that set this youngest son apart from his older seven brothers? Now understand and, and be reminded God is all-seeing, God is all-knowing, 
God looked into David's heart and he understood that this man would commit adultery. This man would conspire to murder. This man, when, when these events unfolded later on, it, it didn't catch God off guard. He, he wasn't surprised. He said, oh, I didn't see that coming. God chose David having examined his heart. And that examination did not lead him to make his choice based on any moral excellence in David. Or any flawless record of conduct. It was not the purity of David's heart that attracted God's attention. Because David's heart and my heart and I know too, your hearts are sinful hearts. God's word makes it clear this is not a matter for discussion. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. And when God searches our hearts, he knows what is there. And it is not good. Nobody has a pure heart. So what did God see when he looked into the heart of rejected King Saul? He saw a sinful man. And what did God see as he looked into the heart of the selected, the chosen King David? He saw a sinful man. What then? What makes a difference? Why is one selected and the other rejected if they're both hearts filled with sin? And the only discernible difference I can see, this took a lot of wrestling because I turned to the commentaries and they didn't have the answer. But the, the only difference between these two men that I can see is that within David there is this discernible spread of repentance. I don't know if you've heard of George MacDonald. He was a, a 19th century Scottish author and minister and he, he was hugely influential in his writings and he wrote these lovely uh, allegories, but he wrote these words. He said, love surrounds us, seeking the smallest crack by which it may rush in. And as we look back into the story of, of 1 Samuel and these chapters, we've just come through 13, 14, 15, we see again and again that Saul disobeys, Saul sins. And Saul is confronted by Samuel, God's spokesman, for his sin. But there's a, a failure to accept God's diagnosis. There's a failure to pursue treatment for his heart disease. 1 Samuel 15, 26. Just look across the page. It says, Samuel speaks to Saul. I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You have rejected the word of the Lord. God has spoken to you. He's called you to your senses. He's given you that, that call to repent of your sin. And get right with God. But you have rejected his message. Refused to heed his word. 
And the message of God's word, the message of the scripture is this, that if we persist in unrepentant living, if people continually hear God's word and refuse to respond to it, God will give them over to the consequence of their choices. If they reject God's law, he will reject them. And they will perish in their sin. You know the story, you know what comes as yet in in the life of David. He sins grievously, although there's no such little sin or insignificant sin, but his is certainly a serious sin. And he's confronted about it, and in that confrontation, David is broken, David is repentant. He cries out to God because he understands only God can help him. No one else can get him out of this mess. He prays, Psalm 51 verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. And David understands that the only hope, the only possible, only possibility of a renewed heart, a cleansed heart, is to be found in God. Psalm 51 verse 7, he prays, purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Here is imagery of of sacrifice and cleansing. Hyssop was the branch that you dipped in the blood to use to sprinkle it for cleansing. He knows that he can't tidy up his life. He he can't get things right by, by good behavior. Something more significant. Blood has to be shed. A life has to be given that he might be forgiven. Only blood can wash the stain from his heart. And David's heart was not a sinless heart, but it was a submissive heart. David's heart, as God gazed into it, was not a righteous heart, but it was a repentant heart. And we see the confirmation of the choice. Samuel completes the task he was sent to do, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. In the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. He anointed him. The word that gives us in Hebrew Messiah or in Greek Christ. He sets him apart. David becomes the anointed one, the Messiah of his people. And the God who calls his servants into his kingdom is also the God that equips them for that task of service. And the outward symbol of the oil streams from his head and down onto his shoulders. And and that's an outward picture of a reality that we're told up here that was occurring in David's heart. The spirit of God rushes upon him. God empowers him for what he's yet to do. The, The shepherd boy now becomes equipped to be king over God's people. The presence of God by his spirit moves upon him. But we discover the opposite happening in Saul's life. Verses 14 and 15. As David receives the blessing of God's empowering, Saul has it taken from him. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now... A harmful spread from God is tormenting you. Now people get a bit perplexed when they read this. They ask, does God send evil spirits to oppress people? 
To help us understand this, we need to grasp this important thing that there, there is no such thing as a, a, a spiritual vacuum. There is no such thing as spiritual neutrality. Where God is not present to bring his light, there is darkness. Spiritual darkness. Saul had known the lightness of God's spirit upon him. But now when God removes his spirit from him, he experiences this deep spiritual darkness. The absence of God at work within him. And it brings dread and distress into his life. The Romanian pastor Richard Vermbrand, a man tortured in prison by brutal guards for his uh, faithfulness to Jesus Christ. He, he, he said that he, he learned an important lesson from his guards. When someone asked him what he meant, he explained it as follows. He said, as they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would leave not the smallest place for Satan in mine. As God withdrew his spirit from Saul, the, the way was open for Satan's occupation. The chapter ends with this bright spark in Saul's court coming up with a really good answer to his problem. If he could just someone to come along and strum his lyre, a little lyre music is good for the soul. It'll help everyone. It'll control the mood that Saul experienced. The 17th century English dramatist William Congreve wrote words. I'm sure you've heard them before. Music hath charms to soothe a savage breast, to soften rocks and bend a knotted oak. We know that music affects us in deep places. Hopefully you're aware of that. Music can make you feel happy or it can make you feel mellow. It can stir you for action or it can calm you to relax. Some of you will have been to a spa and they play that tortuous calming music that drives me to want to pull my hair out but I'm sure it has a good purpose. Or pan pipes, ding, gongs, and things like that. No, but the purpose of it is just to make you feel relaxed. Or some of you have been to a sporting occasion, and as the teams go onto the pitch, rising music is played to get passion among the crowd and among the players so that they will perform at their best. Music can lift us or lower us, and we understand how that works in worship. As we sing great hymns of praise, it lifts us. Sadly, sometimes we're far more focused on the music being played than the truth of the words that are being conveyed. Sadly, sometimes we, we express that if the music is not to our personal taste, well, we don't find pleasure in worship, which shows that we think it's all about us and not about God. It's about meeting our desires and not the God we come to worship. And Saul has this great wound in his soul. And this little sticking plaster of lyre music tries to cover it up. But it's not a cure. And if only, if only Saul had had a heart like David's, if only Saul could have prayed as David prayed, 
Psalm 51 verses 11 and 12 where David says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Did David write that knowing what had happened to Saul in his disobedience, losing the presence of God in his life? David's repentant heart knows that the sole cure is the Spirit of God coming to him. The restoration of God's work in his heart. And Jesus encourages us. He he tells us that we are to come to him as children to a father. A father who delights to give good gifts. A father who will not turn us away from him empty-handed if we come and ask in the right way. Luke 11, 9-13, you know these words. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you? If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So three summary points of what we've been saying. Number one, stop whining. Start worshipping. Things may be going wrong around you, but God is still on the throne. Praise him. Stop whining, start worshiping. Number two, stop regretting your sin and start repenting of it. You see, when we sin, it mars our lives. It must do. But great David's greater son shed his blood on Calvary's cross so that you might be forgiven, so that your soul, your heart might be cleansed, so that he might give to you perfect righteousness, not of your own, all of him. Gained as you come, repenting. Stop regretting your sin. Start repenting of it. And finally, stop pandering to your own feelings. And start praying for the filling of the Spirit. We like things that we like. We ought to like what God likes. And ask him to give us such a passion. As we close, I want to use the words of a prayer of Scotty Smith. You've heard of his prayers before. 